Today we're going to be in Revelation chapter 12. What I like to do is, when I have time allows me, is to kind of go back to the Old Testament so we kind of get well-rounded. If you want to turn to Proverbs 4, starting in verse 20, when time allows, we do start with the proverb of the day. I'm going to read a few verses and just do it topically, and then we're going to move into Revelation. Proverbs 4, chapter 20. I'm sorry, 4, verse 20. He says, my son, give attention to my words. This is a father literally speaking to a literal son. Incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your eyes. Keep them in the midst of your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. Put away from you a deceitful mouth and put perverse lips far from you. Let your eyes look straight ahead. And your eyelids look right before you. Ponder the path of your feet. And let all your ways be established. Do not turn to the right or to the left. Remove your foot from evil. Again, some good practical wisdom. Proverbs is wisdom literature. And he's saying to his son, hide my wisdom, my lessons, deep in the recesses of your mind and heart, because someday you will need them. Kind of reminds me when I was a teen, my dad, when he was trying to guide me, He would say, humans are the only animals that don't learn from their parents' mistakes. And he's right. It's almost in a sense that you look at what somebody has done and they've messed some things up in their life and you go, hey, that ruined your life? Hey, how do I try that? Why do we do that? You know? And then we fall into the, it's, there's no difference. It's the same uh, circus but different clowns just years later. But if, if nothing else, even if, even if you don't think that your parents had a lot of wisdom, at least learn from their mistakes, right? We, we certainly can take that lesson. And not only is this wisdom from a father to a son, but it's also wisdom from our heavenly father to us, his children. Now, there's an expression in the Old Testament, moving down, used to describe the good Jewish kings. If you're familiar with the historical works of, of Israel, it says, he did what is right in the sight of the Lord and did not turn to the right or to the left. And for the evil kings, it said that he, you know, he went into the ways of evil, and that's how he departed. But sin is distracting, it's enticing. You know, it's almost as if, I mean, listen, in the Old Testament and New Testament, it's the same, same idea. You're on a path. You could either be on the right path or the wrong path. Jesus spoke about the wide path that re- leads to destruction, and most people find that, and the narrow path that leads to everlasting life. But check this out. You know, we, we, we see that they're uh, Jewish idioms, but when we really think about the idioms, they make a lot of sense. Don't look to the right or to the left. Keep your eyes on the path. The word, the Bible says, is a lamp into our uh, feet and a light into our path. God gives us just enough light to see where we're going, and he gives us that light every day. Now, let's give you another, um, another uh, analogy. If you're on a path and you're walking, let's say, a straight line, and you're focused on the goal, well, what happens if you're distracted by some type of sin and it's out here somewhere and you turn your head and you look at it, you eventually start to do this. You start to walk off the path, don't you? So it makes a lot of sense. Keep focused. Don't look to the right or the left. Pay attention. And these are important things to uh, understand. And this will come to play later in the book of Revelation and you'll see, or this particular chapter. Okay, so fast forward to Revelation 12, the last book of the Bible, all the way to the right. Revelation 12. The last time we talked about the future temple and God's two witnesses, and today we're going to decipher signs in the Greek, semeon. 
What does that mean? The signs of this mystery woman and the war in heaven. And you really got to use your imagination with this because it's, it's really fascinating to read. Verse 1. It says, Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. There's a lot of theories. There's some portions of scripture where there's just a lot of theories on who these creatures are, beings are, etc. And this is one of them. Well, I can tell you right off the bat, it's not Sarah Palin and it's not Hillary Clinton. Okay? And it's not even Mary. Some would say, oh, it's, it's the mother of Jesus. Catholic doctrine holds that. But it can't be based on their own doctrine. Because their own doctrine says that Mary was born without sin, as Jesus was, and that's not true. And they also say that Mary was bodily assumed into heaven like Elijah. And that's nowhere in scripture or secular sources. So if Mary was born without sin, then how could she give birth with incredible pain? She can't. Because the Bible says that part of the pain of childbirth was the result of sin. So even by their own doctrine, that doesn't make sense. So who are we left with? What does this sign represent? A sign is an omen or a representation. Okay? Some believe in the evangelical community, in the replacement theology community, that the sign is the church. Well, there's a problem with that. Because what came first, the chicken or the egg? Did the church give birth to Jesus? Or did Jesus give birth to the church? It's the latter. So this, how could this woman, if it's the church, be pregnant and give birth? What is she giving birth to? doesn't make any sense because we know the male child is Jesus. Remember what I said about foundations. If you have a right foundation in this book, it's easier to interpret. If you start with a faulty foundation, you can. Replacement theology is rooted in a little bit of antisemitism where, the, where Israel is done. Israel is just to be cursed from now on, and God is not going to bless her anymore. And that's not true, as we'll see. So, in Genesis 37, Joseph had a dream with similar imagery. The sun, the moon, and the stars, and they bowed down to him. And that was a picture of Israel, because he went to Egypt, became the second in command, and Israel, which was um, really a microcosm or macrocosm of his family, um, had to go to him into Egypt to survive because of the famine. So scripture interprets scripture. Other Old Testament scriptures tell us that Israel has often been compared, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, to a woman in labor. And she's also been compared uh, to an adulterous woman. When Israel as a whole, God's people, went after false gods, he said, you have played the harlot. You have committed adultery against me, as in a sense the nation being married to God. The garland of 12 stars represents a sovereign Israel. Each star, the 12 stars, represent the 12 tribes, the 12 sons of Jacob who became the nation of Israel. Now, in childbirth, she cried in pain. Labor was difficult for her. Well, if she's giving birth to the male child, which is Jesus the Messiah, we know from history that when the Jewish nation birthed the Messiah, Jesus, it caused great upheaval and turmoil, spiritually and physically. You see, at the time of Jesus, the reason why everybody was so willing to put him to death was because the Jews, the Jewish leadership, and the Roman leadership had a tenuous, precarious type of relationship, but it worked. When Jesus came, he upset the apple cart. So certainly when this woman gave birth to the Messiah, and the Messiah was presented to Israel, there was a lot of upheaval. Jesus said, it's about the eternal kingdom, not the kingdom that you see here. We should be looking to store up treasures in heaven. 
Verse 3. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great megas, fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. What does the tremendous red dragon represent? Satan. That's an easy one. There's a similar description to the beast or the Antichrist in next Sunday's uh, study. And I don't want to get to that yet because we're going to cover that. So I won't go into great detail about all the heads and the crowns today. But suffice it to say that um, it's, it, it, it's emblematic of his power over worldly kingdoms. This is, we, we've given this, this world over to Satan. Because of man's sin and man's rebellion, we forfeited this creation. And because of that, there was the curse because of sin, and it's been given over to Satan. And we know that Satan came to Jesus and tried to tempt him and offer him back all the kingdoms, which he had that right to do. And Jesus was like, not that way. I'm going to take it back a different way. Now, red, the color red, is emblematic of blood and death. If you remember the seven seals going back a few Sundays, when the seventh seal was broken and opened, I saw a second horse, and he was fiery red, and war sat on that horse. This further represents this color, the death, the carnage, and the hatred of mankind at the hands of Satan. And then it says he drew, Satan drew a third of the stars and cast them to the earth. Satan was actually able to lead a rebellion against God and take a third of the angels with him. Now that's covered in Isaiah 14. If you read that on your own, you can see Satan's fall, Satan's wanting to rise to power and then uh, his fall from grace, so to speak. And also in Daniel chapter 8, it's, uh, there's also imagery about that taking those stars from heaven again. So it's well documented in the scripture. This is fascinating. What did God do wrong? that Satan was able to lead a third of the stars, a third of the angels, against God. Was he a bad leader? Was it bad communication? Did he offend somebody? Did he play favorites? Certainly not. God is perfect. It's simple. The Bible says that God is a God of order, is a God of structure. Romans 13 speaks about government. Even though government in most societies are corrupt, at least some type of government is better than anarchy. But Satan, on the other hand, is, is always the opposite of whatever God does, he does the opposite. God says it's a beautiful day outside, Satan says it's ugly. You know what I'm saying? Um, God says black, Satan says white. That's just the way he is. Satan is the God, little g, false God, of anarchy. It's clear in the scripture. Now let's just take this, let's just run through this a little bit. In the secular world, look at any presidential cabinet. Could be Bush, it could be Clinton. At some point in time, somebody in that cabinet will turn on the president because of political expediency. Everybody loves Obama right now, but wait till he gets in. They find the weakness in him, they'll go after him. Somebody in his cabinet can try to get a better position politically, they'll attack him and expose something about him. So you see it happening in the secular world. It's very common. If it happens to God and it happens in the secular world, it shouldn't surprise us when it happens in ministry. And it's often precipitated from within. The Apostle Paul spoke in Acts chapter 20. Paul knew that he had to leave. And he said, my concern is that when I leave, men will creep in. Savage wolves from the inside, from inside the church, will rise up, speak perverse things, and pull a gathering away. 
and take a gathering unto themselves. It's very clear in Scripture. You see, some taste authority and can handle it. Others taste it and like the way it feels when others follow them. And it gives them a high, in a sense. And this is what happened with Satan. He wasn't happy being a leader. He wanted to be the leader. He said, I will ascend to the heavens. I will be like the Most High. He had great privilege in heaven, but he wanted to be on top. It's happened in ministry, and certainly it's happened in here a few times. It happens in every church. Most pastors I speak to, this type of situation has happened. Somebody will rise up, gather a leader of following unto themselves, and they'll take them with them. Well, it's not going to happen here, I can tell you that, as long as I'm the pastor. <laughs> I, I remember um, a line from the new Batman series, The Dark Knight. How many people saw that? In the second one, the Joker, right? He was just nuts. He was an anarchist. And it was funny because Bruce Wayne was trying to figure out the Joker. Who is he? What's his deal? What does he want? You know, how can we fix this thing? And Alfred, in his English accent, who was like his caretaker and a father to him, he knew better. He turned to Bruce Wayne and said, Master Wayne, some men just want to watch the world burn, in his English accent. And it's true. Some men just want to watch the world burn. That's the way terrorists are. They blow things up. Every time you try to reason with them and give them more land, it doesn't matter. Given some time, they'll blow something up again. So it's, it's a very interesting concept. And it's, it's really a mindset that, that these people have. And it's those that are... You've got to be careful sometimes for people who are always looking for a cause to fight. Now, causes are good. As a matter of fact, there's a cause that's going to come up uh, a lot of Christians are even rallying around it now. It's called FOCA, the Freedom of Choice Act. And some of the extremists in, in Congress want President Obama to sign this. And if he does, what it will do is it will almost double the amount of abortions, abortions that happened in the United States. No parental notifications, um, abortion on demand, uh, no provision if the baby is born or uh, comes out alive. It's pretty awful stuff. And you know what? I'm praying for my president. I want him to succeed, and I hope you are too. And if that comes up, we need to petition our president. We need to call our elected officials. That's a good cause to fight. But beware of those who are always looking to fight a cause. They go from cause to cause to cause to cause, and they're always looking to topple authority. These are people that need to be needed, they're empty inside, and they're insecure. And it all comes from a satanic mindset. So the question is, who is the child? We're starting to break things apart and understand the players here. So we have the dragon is Satan, we have the woman is Israel, but who is the, ch the child? Well, it's easy to understand that if Satan is trying to destroy one person, the dragon is focused on one little baby, one person, the child can only be Jesus Christ. Because he is that one person who's come into the world that's made such an effect for eons to come. Obviously, Satan knew the significance of the Messiah and his redemptive plan of mankind. If that's the case and mankind is redeemed, Satan becomes obsolete. Genesis 3.15, a scripture thousands of years ago, God prophesied to Satan. He said, the seed of the woman will come and crush your head. He will deliver a, a fatal blow to you. And that seed of the woman ultimately was Jesus Christ. Satan tried to destroy the Messiah as he came out through the Bethlehem massacre. Remember that? Anyone, uh, any child two and under, 
They went into Bethlehem. It was a little, set, little town, little village. Didn't make much of a splash. And they slaughtered the children. What's interesting about Herod is, in history, Herod the Great, it was said about him by Caesar Augustus, it was safer to be Herod's pig than it was his family member. This is true. Because Herod was a paranoid leader. He was um, worried about those taking over his position. So even members of his own family he had slaughtered so they wouldn't usurp his authority. And this is one of the ways that the dragon tried to swallow the male child. But of course, he was unsuccessful. Verse 5, it's starting to build up here. And she bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. Now, we're going to go from the birth of the Messiah right to the ascension, then to the seating at the right hand of the Father, and then to the millennial kingdom. And remember what I said about prophecy. Just go with it. Relax and go with it. See, we think chronologically. Time. You know, time ticks, and there's an order to time. When there's prophecy being given forth, okay, God sees everything at the same time, but sometimes it's confusing us because of the way history moves. But just try to, just try to follow what I'm saying here. So the birth of Christ um, to the ascension, he was caught up to the Father, and then to be seated at the right hand. And then it says that he will rule the nations with a rod of iron, which comes directly out of Psalm 2.9 and further reveals that this child is Jesus. And that's a picture of the millennial kingdom. Christ has not led or ruled with a rod of iron yet, but he will. It's a future event. The woman Israel flees from the dragon, and we'll go into that into the next few verses. Verse 7. Now, you've got to use your imagination here. I, mean, I could just picture this sight because the Bible says that the uh, stars of heaven, the angels, are like an innumerable host. How can we count all the angels that God has, has created? It says this, And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. Michael is the archangel, the, one of the head chief angels, and the dragon is Satan. Now, remember, we, we tend to ascribe greater importance to Satan than he really has. Satan is just an angel. That, that rebelled and became this great figure in the personification of evil. But he's, he's no powerful, no more powerful than Michael, obviously, from the scripture. And the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. They lost. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So you see this big blowout between the good angels and the bad. And some say, well, that's just the personification of good and evil. It is, in one sense. However, it's also an actual event because of the detail that's given. Evil loses, and the bad angels are cast down to the earth. Now, there's a progression here. First, angels had privilege in heaven. They were able to, you know, God created them. The word angelos in the Greek just means messenger. So God created all these angels to be his messengers, to do his bidding. And all the angels had access to, to God. And then what happened is a third of them turned bad and now had limited access. Remember the book of Job when Satan comes before God? Now, he's already rebelled. And God says, have you com considered my servant Job? He's a good man. He's upright. And Satan says, no, he's not. I bet you if you take stuff away from him, he'll turn against you. So Satan still had some limited access to God's throne. And then there'll be a point where the Bible says that there'll be no more access Satan and his angels will be cast into the lake of fire to be punished for eternity. We're kind of living in an era that's sort of the in-between stages, all right? 
uh, an era where the underworld still has some access. And how do I know that? Because even when Jesus spoke to Peter, he said to Peter, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. He knows this. Jesus knows everything. Satan must have come before God and said, I want to sift Peter, sort of like I sifted Job. And God probably said, Peter's going to come out shining you know, and doing well. And Satan says, let's see. Let's see what happens. Again, this is kind of conjecture. And it was allowed to happen. And Jesus said, and my prayer is that when you come back, you know, that you're, you're strengthened and you strengthen your brethren. So Jesus knew that Peter would go through a time of trial and then eventually come back. So the underworld has some access still uh, to God's throne. Now, some believe that an all-out war or this war starts at the rapture, which would certainly explain the power that Satan has in these future days, okay? In the future, in the book of Revelation, there'll be mass evil on the earth. It'll be worse than, than anything we've ever seen before. Mass anti-Semitism, mass uh, sinful and rebelliousness of, of people. And that certainly would explain now Satan is being cast to the earth and he's creating havoc on the earth at that particular point. What I find interesting too is that the angels fought with each other. Did you notice that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit weren't part of this war? It was just angels against angels. You see, when you look at the movies, it, it appears that, that Satan is so powerful and that he fights directly with God and, and they have this struggle. Not true. The truth is that sort of like when a gnat or a mosquito comes and lands on your arm, you, you slam it and then you flick it off, God could do that to Satan. He's allowing Satan some time to do what he needs to do to work according to his purposes, and then eventually Satan will be destroyed like that. It's not going to be an effort from God. And that should give us comfort. That's the type of God that we serve. Now, a little bit on the names. Um, Satan is called the serpent of old. We see that right from the beginning, the Genesis temptation. He was the serpent of old. He's called the devil, which in the Greek is diabolos, where we get the word in English diabolical. And here it means slanderer. And also the name Satan, which I'll get to in the next few verses. 10. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows he has a short time. The accuser of the brethren, the word Satan means accuser. Remember how I said that Satan is always a counterfeit of Christ? He tries to emulate him, but it's always, of course, negative. Jesus has these glorious names, the lion, the lamb, um, uh, the lion of the tribe of, of Juba, uh, Judah, the morning star. And Satan also has his names, slanderer, accuser, liar, right? A lion looking to tear our flesh and, and tear us apart as believers. He accuses us day and night, and according to the scripture, he's finally shut up and ignored. Again, I'm going to take a little bit of artistic liberties here. So I can just picture, I'm not really sure how the spiritual realm works, but we know that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. He always comes before God's throne and says, skin for skin, that a man has. That Job, pff, you start taking away uh, problems with his body, I bet you he curses you to your face. And it's just exponential. 
you, me, we've all been probably brought before the Father on charges brought by Satan. You know, that guy Russ in the front row, Lord. Look at him. He always sits in the front. He thinks he's all holy. I saw how he treated his wife this morning. He was bickering with her. How could, you, how could he call himself a Christian? And that guy Dave over there, the worship leader, all oh, holy, holy, playing with the guitar. I saw last week he went to stop and shop, and the, cash, the cashier underrung $10, and he just walked out and didn't tell her. And that guy, the biggest goofball of them all, Pastor Joe. He's a pastor by morning and a cop by night. How stupid is that? Look at what kind of foolish place this is. This is what he does. Day and night, he accuses us. He finds our deepest insecurities. He makes fun of us. He finds a little thing that we did, and he blows it out of proportion. And God finally says, shut up, down. You're cast to the earth. Can't wait for that day, right? So the application here is don't condemn yourself because there's somebody who already has a full-time job doing it. Why are you making his job any easier, right? We condemn ourselves. We've been washed by the blood of Christ. We believe that Jesus died for our sins. And if we really say we believe, then we also believe that all the sins we've ever committed, it's covered. It's covered under his blood. Verse 11. They were able to uh, overcome him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. A lot of how-to books out there. I've read a few of them. How to wire your house, electricity, make sure you shut off the breaker box. How to do plumbing, how to do carpentry, right? How to overcome the accuser. That's right here. It's really only by shifting blame. It's only by shifting blame is how we can overcome the accuser. Because I got news for you. When Satan accuses me and you and you and you and you, most, most of the times he's right. So how do I get this blame off of me? Well, Jesus did that. He said, I have a plan. I'm going to die on the cross, and I'm going to bear all the sins, Jen's sins, Dan's sins, you know, um, Genez's sins, everybody's sins. He's going to bear their sins and, and destroy them. Take them, to, take them to the cross, shed his blood, and boom, it's over. When Jesus went on the cross, he each took our identities, and he took that blame that each one of us rightfully have, and he buried it with, in, in, with the cross. He buried it. It's gone, and he rose from the dead. So, it's only by blame shifting, and Jesus was the ultimate one who allowed us to blame him for our sins. It's only when we're free from deserved criticism and we're washed in his blood and built up by the word of his testimony or we're a witness. It's only by our foundation in Christ that anyone can win against Satan. Anyone. I kind of laugh at some of those preachers who go up there and say, ah, I'm going to fight you, devil. Come on, devil. Please. You, there's nothing you can do against the spiritual realm unless you're in Christ. You have to have that foundation. Even if you're killed by Satan, the Bible says, don't worry about it. Jesus says, don't fear the one who can kill the body, and after that, there's nothing left he could do uh, to you. Fear the one who can take the body and has the power to throw someone into hell. That's the one we should fear if we're going to fear anybody. Woe to the earth's inhabitants. Satan has a short time, and he has come down to the earth, not for us, but even now, he tries to make folks ineffective with his suggestions of what failures we are. Not only does he accuse us to the Father, you ever get a thought in your mind that it comes out of nowhere and it just really makes you down and sends you into an emotional spiral? A lot of you have, apparently. Again, I don't know exactly how the spiritual realm works, but Satan is the great liar. He's the great deceiver. He's the great God of deception. He's allowed to put, I believe, thoughts into our hearts and uh, cause us to have those feelings. But you know what? We have to have the foundation on the word of God to overcome that. 
Galatians 6, 9. It's a great scripture. It says, let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Why is that in there? Because sometimes there's a tendency for us to lose heart, right? Why would the Bible warn us about something if it wasn't a possibility that it could happen? And I don't know all of your situations. Listen, it's cold out, it's blah, the sun's not out, the economy's bad. You know what? Some people are losing their jobs. Some people can't get work. You know, some of you are, have the seasonal blues, and some of you have bigger problems than that, maybe relational issues, marital issues. I don't know what's going on in your heads, but don't lose heart. Be a Christian. Have that foundation in Jesus Christ. Take the words off the pages and meditate them and let them melt into your heart, right? We covered a psalm today in the children's ministry, and David starts. It's only like seven verses. The first two verses, he's, he's just upset. He's bummed. He's, Lord, why are you taking so long? And by the last two verses, he says, but you know what, Lord? You've never done me wrong before, and I will trust in you. And that's the way it has to be. We, we release those emotions, get them out, put them out there, and then we come back to our senses and realize who we serve. We serve a big God. Verse 13, last few verses. You know what's interesting, too, is that those who I think sometimes, even if we're at a workplace and you say the word the devil or Satan, people snicker. You know, they make fun of you. That's silly, Satan, the devil. That's so archaic. The ironic thing is those who don't believe in Satan, ironically, are controlled by him. Just keep that in mind. It's a spiritual warfare. Satan's a deceiver. He deceives those who he's controlling to believe that he doesn't exist. Isn't that weird? It's a little mind puzzle for you. Verse 13. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So the child or the son is caught up to God. He can't persecute the child anymore. Um, Jesus grew up. He died on the cross. He was resurrected. He ascended into heaven. The next best thing to destroy is the one who birthed the son, which is Israel. Now, not just because Israel birthed the son, but because the prom listen, the church is gone, Jesus is gone, who's left? Israel. Now, the Bible says there's some promises that pertain to Israel that haven't been fulfilled yet. So Satan can try his best to make God a liar, okay? He can try by ruining God's promises. So now he focuses all his attention on Israel because she's the only one left, and if he can try to thwart her or destroy her, then those promises that God made to Israel are now null and void. So this great anti-Semitism starts to arise. And we've seen that anti-Semitism. If you read the news, look at especially Europe. France, self-reported, is alarmed. France is alarmed because of the rise of anti-Semitism in that country. Forget about the Arab world. They hate the Jews. What about the church? We're seeing more and more that churches are starting to turn their back on the Jews, on Israel. Ah, they make their own problems. Listen, I'm not saying that everything Israel does is right, but I'm saying 
Israel is a main player in end times theology and prophecy. We can't turn our back on Israel. God loves her. God is going to redeem her like he redeemed us. And, and you see that rise in anti-Semitism, and some of it is rooted in, or anti, uh, replacement theology is rooted in that. God is done with Israel. She only deserves the curses of God. We need to turn our back on her and let her just kind of sit out there in the Middle East, and who cares what happens to her? It's wrong. And furthermore, I would say that we can't, be, can't call ourselves Christians if we hate Jews, if we're anti-Semitic. The two of them don't coexist, okay? That's important to know. Now, where is she going to go? Well, there's different scriptures. We've covered this before. We've given out handouts. We've talked about it in detail. The rock city of Petra, which is a whole fortress uh, city, incredibly built, embedded into a mountain, and it has a very narrow uh, way to go into it. So actually, Israel could be safe from tanks, from helicopters and planes. You gotta, we've had them out on the table a few times in the, at the info table, but it's really... It's amazing how long it took to build the city, and it's so embedded into the mountain that a people could go there. It's currently uninhabited. They could go there and live there and be hided and sheltered, even from a lot of modern weaponry and artillery. So it's modern-day Jordan. And something interesting about Jordan is in Daniel chapter 11, verse 41, when the Antichrist gathers all his armies, and he goes and he has all these incursions against the world, and he tries to take over the world, two places in Daniel chapter 11... <laughs> 41, right, you turn there, haven't been touched by the Antichrist, Moab and Ammon. Okay, who cares, what's Moab and Ammon? That's the old names for current-day modern Jordan. So Israel, the Jews, will flee to the east, cross the border, for somehow Jordan will be a safe haven, and they'll be able to find shelter there. Pretty amazing. And they'll be protected for three and a half years, those who actually flee there. It doesn't mean that every Jewish person is going to flee there. Verse 14, it says, Israel will be given two wings to escape. Now, the wings, again, if you know your Old Testament, if you look at the Exodus, if you look at the return from Babylon, um, this has been emblematic before of God's rescue of his people. In the Exodus, it, it spoke about them having two wings of eagles, and they were able to flee out of Egypt and find safe haven. Verse 15, it says, The dragon now sends a flood to swallow up Israel. A flood, it could be armies, or it could be just general anti-Semitism, severe persecution. And verse 16, it says, But the earth opened up and swallowed the flood, certainly at the hand of God, to protect his people. And I would say it's probably literally. If you remember Numbers 16, again, all the way back in the Old Testament, when Korah led a rebellion against Moses' authority, Korah had a bunch of followers, and he, 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 he rebelled against Moses, and Moses said something to the effect of, if, if he's supposed to be the leader, um, you know, then nothing will happen. If not, let something unusual happen. <laughs> and, and after he said that, God opened up the earth, and all Korah and his followers fell into the earth, and it was closed up. Oh, if it was just that easy. Um, <laughs> so we never know if the earth will, will open up again and swallow all those who come to persecute Israel. Verse 17, last verse. The dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. This reminds me of a criminal who knows the laws on his tail. He knows. They have his identity. He's stealing cars. He's trying to get away, and he's got the law hot on his tail. Satan becomes desperate, and he does desperate things. The church is raptured. The fleeing Jews are safe. 
um, Jesus' his power and glory. Now he desperately searches for any more believers to persecute. He looks for their offspring, right? The offspring who keep the commandments and have his testimony. I liken Satan's ultimate demise because that's what we're looking at, right? If you ever watch those cop shows, <laughs> you know, the criminal's running and he starts banging into cars and, you know, driving up on the sidewalk. He knows he's going to get caught, but he's desperate, right? I liken Satan's ultimate demise to even Adolf Hitler in World War II. By late 1944, the world knew that, that Hitler was going to lose, that Germany was going to be invaded. But Hitler still caused, up until his last day, untold suffering to Jews, to German countrymen, to the Allies, to the, to the bitter end. Similar to Hitler, we have a defeated foe. Now, Hitler was still causing problems, but he was defeated. It just was a matter of time. It's the same thing with Satan. He is a defeated foe, and he's still causing, though, much of the world's suffering. Satan, as the dragon, came against Christ. He came against the church. He comes against Israel, and he even came against the angelic host, but lost. And currently, he's very effective in persecuting Christians and trying to make them ineffective all around the world. Many of you, and I've said this before, are dealing with those challenges today. If you think about it, you know, some of you are just like, Lord, come, you know, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, please come back and, and right all the wrongs. Help me out here. As we enter the first week of 2009, which we're doing today, let us remember the one who comes against us is already a defeated foe and, and meditate on that. And also the one who is for us is the one who was and is and is to come. And when you put them on the scales, they do this. You know, it, it's really no competition there. My prayer is that remember, we remember two things. The proverb of the day, Proverbs 4, to keep our eyes focused on the path. And also to remember Galatians 6, 9 that says, And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Let's allow that scripture and meditate on that scripture to guide our behavior and our thoughts and our actions this year. Let's pray.